Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for the time that we can gather together to sing our praises, to express our love, to bring you worship. We want to be more than just students. We want to be worshipers. We invite you by your Holy Spirit to be powerfully present in this room today, that each one of us would go away not entertained by the music and a speech, but rather stunned by being in the presence of the living God. And Father, now I pray that you will speak to us and give us listening ears and invite our hearts to come before your throne and be changed. For we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. If you, if you guys watch Downton Abbey, I really like this show, Downton Abbey. I don't actually watch all the shows that I talk about. This is one that we had to watch all of the seasons. It's a TV historical drama that's set in the early 20th century, um, created by Julian Fellows, and it, uh, it ran and started in the United States in, in 2011 on PBS, but we watched it on Netflix. You can see that now. It's, there's 52 episodes, but worth every one of them. So the series is set in this fictional Yorkshire um, county estate of Downton Abbey, and it takes place between 1912 and 1926. So there's a lot of historical events significant to the time that are played into it. And it follows this aristocratic family by the name of Crowley, and there's all these subplots mostly having to do with the servants in this huge manor house. One of the subplots is that there's a, uh, a butler who's his name is Thomas Barrow, and he's jealous because he wants to have the, the uh, he wants to be Lord Gratham's personal uh, butler, personal, uh, what's the guy that dresses you called? Uh? Yeah, that's it, valet. So he's jealous, and so there's this interaction going back. Also, there's this subplot of this guy who's the, uh, the uh, chauffeur, but he's secretly an Irish anarchist, and so there's a, that plot going on. And he's also secretly in love with one of the Lord's daughters, which is strictly forbidden because of the class distinction. So all of the interactions are depicting the servants' lives with one another and the servants' lives with the, the Lord, Lord Grantham, um, Grantham in this case. Each of these servants has a different job, and so they're interacting with each other, but they're not doing the same job. I mean, there's a whole plethora of people in the kitchen providing food for, for everyone, and there's the, the butlers and the housekeepers and the chauffeurs and the groundskeepers, all these people doing their own job, and they're interacting with their, their, their lives, but they're, they're not responsible to each other. They're only responsible to the Lord. They all have their own responsibilities. Some of them have very physically challenging jobs. Some of them are more accounting and organizing jobs. Some of them have higher stations. Some of them are very low stations, like the the, the maid that helps out in the kitchen, she's like the lowest of low in, in the house. But they're all working together for, to run the house, and they're working together for the benefit of the Lord and master of the house. Now, I want to illustrate that by pointing out how very much like the church that is, that we all have different responsibilities, we all have different roles, but we interact with each other, but we don't answer to each other. We answer only to the Lord. We are working for the benefit of the Lord. We're not working to please each other, and we're not responsible for each other. I'd like you to take your Bible <coughs> and turn to me where we left, left off last week in Romans chapter 14, verse 1. 
I'm going to be using the NIV this week instead of the ESV just for one reason it suits my purposes. The translation works better for what I'm trying to say today. So we'll look to the NIV. The text today from Romans chapter 14, 1 through 12 is about accepting fellow Christians who are different from us, not trying to force them to conform to our image, but helping them to conform to the image of God's Son because that's what the Lord's doing. And so he's... He's, he's, uh, Paul is writing to the Church of Rome because that's not happening in Rome. There's differences of opinion. They have a, a strong division over a couple different issues. In this particular case, one of the issues is whether or not it's okay to eat meat. Um, maybe it's because they don't know where the meats come from. It's uh, been offered to idols, like in other places we saw that they were resistant to eating meat that had been previously offered to idols. Or maybe it's just that, that they don't they can't guarantee that it's kosher. There's a large Jewish contingent in the Roman church. And the other issue has to do with which holy days uh, the church ought to be observing. So there, there, was, there could be a lot of varieties of conflict, but these tended to be the two that were, that were dividing the, the Roman church. Now, the problem of division in the church was not unique to the Roman church. Remember, the Corinthians were divided over human leaders. The Corinthians were tempted to sue each other over their differences. We have the Galatians who were, quote, biting and devouring one another. There was disunity that was threatening the church of Ephesus, of Colossae, of Philippi. The point is, in, sp in spite of the fact that you ha we have this romantic view of that, that we want our church to look like the first century church, the, the apostolic church, there has never been a time in the history of the church where all Christians were united, they all practiced their faith in the same way. It has always been the case that Christians had very strong differences of opinion that threatened to tear the church apart. And it, but while there's never been a time that the church had full unity, it really hasn't been necessary either, and that's the point that Paul is making, that we can be united under the essentials of the faith, things like the virgin birth, the, uh, that God, that Jesus was God eternal, come in flesh, that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, um, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, uh, that he ascended into heaven. These are the essentials, the non-reducible elements of our faith that all Christians are united on. But beyond that, we start to diverge rather quickly. And the question before us today is, do we have to think the same way? Do we have to practice the same way? Does our religion have to look the same? So we have these irreducible, essential elements of the faith, but, but can't we differ in our opinions, in our preferences, and in our practice? The point is, yes, we can be radically different in all those things, but the point is that we need to accept one another in spite of those foibles, in spite of those differences. You know that when a, a man becomes a Christian, and he gives his life to the Lord, he accepts Jesus as his Savior, what happens is that the Holy Spirit instantly moves into that man or woman and begins to change them, making them something they were not before. The Spirit moves in, and he's trying to make them not like cookie-cutter Christians, not like robots, but to make us like the image of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's his agenda. But he has a different timeline than we do. You, know, you would expect that if somebody got saved and they were a, 
a heroin addict and they smoke, maybe it really isn't all that important right away that they give up smoking. But that's the same thing the Holy Spirit does. He's got a different timeline, a different agenda. He's working on people at different, at different paces, but he's working to make them like Jesus, not like each other. So in the passage that we're looking at today, as we begin looking at it, um, right away we see that there's this contrast between the weak and the strong. The, the weak Christians are those who are living by the rules. And they think that everybody else needs to live by the rules because if they're not living by the rules, they're sinning. And the strong Christians in this case are the ones who are um, offended by the legalism of the weak. And they think, I'm free in Christ, I can enjoy my freedoms. The problem is that the weak Christians are judging and condemning the strong Christians and the strong Christians, those that are enjoying their freedom, are despising the weak for their legalism. And Paul's admonition to both of them and to our church as well is that we need to receive each other broadly. We need to love one another graciously. We need, and he gives us three reasons. So the three reasons, this is the outline of the sermon. There's God has received him and God has received you. And secondly, God is his Lord and God is your Lord. And third, God will be his judge, and God will be your judge. Romans 14, verse 1. <coughs> Excuse me. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matter. Now, one man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does for God has accepted him. So since God has received me, I am therefore obligated to receive those whom God has received. It's not my responsibility to decide what requirements God has made on that person for accepting him. And it's not up to me to decide what qualifies someone to be a real Christian or not. Uh, it's not up to me to decide what real Christians can and cannot do um, that's God's responsibility. But isn't it interesting to note how different we are? I mean, you take an examination of different uh, denominations, for instance. And I went to a Dutch Reformed church for a while. They were very conservative and reformed in their theology. Most of them smoked. And when you walked to the church, there'd be a whole bunch of guys sitting on the porch smoking. So that's something we would think is, is totally unacceptable. Everybody knows the name of C.H. Spurgeon. C.H. Spurgeon smoked a lot of cigars, and somebody chastised him one time, you know, how much do you think is too much? And he said, maybe two cigars at the same time. You know, but <laughs> we, we have difference of opinions on that. We have differences of opinion on whether Christians can use alcohol. Yeah, the Lutherans, they encourage drinking wine. A lot of the Reformers encourage drinking beer. In some churches, it's actually expected at a church event that you will be served wine or beer at a church function. Others draw the line someplace else. We, we draw the line on whether it's okay to gamble or listen to rock music or go to movies, go to dances, be a member of a lodge. We, we argue about whether it's okay to read romance novels, watch R-rated movies, use marijuana in any form. We argue about whether you can be a Christian and a Democrat. 
about 25 years ago, there was a group from this church, and we joined a group from another church, a Christian Missionary Alliance, on a, on a, a, a mission trip to, uh, where were we? Costa Rica, yeah. So we're, at the end of the day, a group from our church was gathered together, and we were playing poker for matchsticks. And naturally, Lawrence was cleaning us out because he ins he's a secret card sharp. So we're playing matchsticks. Lawrence is over there building a miniature lumber yard with the matchsticks. <laughs> he's got this huge pile all neatly organized of matchsticks. Anyway, one of the guys from the other church walked in while we're playing poker, and he was really lit. He thought that was the coolest thing, so he sat down and played with us. He was teaching all of these new poker games, and he was so animated. Well, after a while, somebody else from his church walked in the room and saw that we were playing cards and was livid and went out and ratted us out. And so we got called on the carpet, and I'm thinking, oh, no, we're gambling. And even though it's matchsticks, it's not really gambling if Lawrence is cheating, right? Because... <laughs> We're gambling, and this guy has a gambling addiction problem. And obviously, he came in so lit when we were playing poker. And I thought, we're, we're in trouble because we're gambling. That wasn't it. I was surprised. You know what we did that was wrong? We were playing with a deck of cards that had face cards. And the face cards were demonic. Any face card. I had no idea that face cards were demonic. The point is, we all draw a line somewhere. You did when I went through the list. When I got to the point about marijuana and Democrats, you guys all drew a line right there. <laughs> the problem is, you draw a line and you say, Christians behave like this and don't do that, and you turn around and somebody's drawn the line right behind you and included you in those things that Christians don't do. They draw a line with something that you find acceptable. And you say, oh yeah, well, there's some things that you can't do. You can't use things that harm your body because, after all, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you do things that hurt yourself. You're, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. But don't we all do that? Isn't it just a question of degree? I mean, you might not like the fact that some of the Christian smokes or, or he drinks, and you'd say, well, those are things that are wrong because they hurt your body. But don't you do it too with your poor diet? Maybe you drink too much coffee. Maybe you have bad sleeping habits, bad working habits. Maybe you consume way too much sugar. You know, the list can go on and on. You draw the line, but somebody else has drawn the line right behind you. Maybe it's not that you overeat, but maybe it's that you overtalk. Jesus said it's not what goes in your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth that, that defiles you. Maybe that's where the line ought to be drawn. See, judging one another is one of the favorite indoor sports of, of Christians. You know, we, we have grocery lists of things which we have determined are acceptable for the Christian and others are left out. Leslie Flynn wrote the book called Great Church Fights. And he said, wide disagreements exist today in our churches over certain practices. A Christian from the South may be repelled by a swimming party for both men and women, then offend his northern brother by lighting up a cigarette. At an international conclave for missionaries, a woman from the Orient could not wear sandals with a clear conscience. A Christian from Western Canada thought it, would wor thought it worldly for a Christian acquaintance to wear a wedding ring. 
And a woman from Europe thought it almost immoral for a wife not to wear a ring that signaled her status. Man from Denmark was pained to watch British Bible school students play football while the British shrank from his pipe smoking. You know, churches today are torn apart by much less significant issues. We become polarized and, and factionalized. We, we, we feel contempt over the, the broad-minded people um, we criticize their, their behavior and their practices. More recently, churches have been ripped apart over the COVID crisis and the mask mandates. I don't actually know of any church, of all the pastors that I've talked to, I don't know of any church that hasn't lost members over the mask issue, including ours. So Paul's first concern here in Romans 14 is that there should be harmony and so he tells us as he's telling them you need to accept one another receive one another look at your text there not just tolerate each other you need to accept one another embrace each other through those differences yeah the, the weak people have needless scruples I had a friend in college who said, I got scruples the same as the next guy, just don't go flauntering them around is all. You know, the strong Christian criticizes the weak Christian because he thinks that these weak Christians have, have scruples that they're needlessly applying to, to the whole church. And they, and they see the strong Christian, they see those who violate those scruples, not just as wrong, but immoral and probably sinful. We have to be careful that we don't let these scruples, these personal opinions, become the law of the church or the practice of the church. These, these, these rules, they need to be debated, we need to talk about them, but they can't become the requirement for every member of God's family. And then Romans 14.3, he develops this principle of accepting one another. He says the strong, in this case the omnivores, must resist the temptation to despise the, the weak or scorn the weak and the, the, the weak need to resist the temptation to, to censure or pass judgment on the strong. And I got to tell you, when we were criticized for playing cards, I felt really critical, I think I still do, in my heart against these others for imposing their standards upon us. We want to we condemn those that we feel um, are, are, are are narrow, just as the narrow want to condemn those who they consider as reckless. Verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So how do we get over this natural tendency to want to scorn or judge believers who don't have the same standards as we do? And Paul gives us several truths from which to start. The first is that we need to realize that the other Christian does not answer to you, he answers to God. So Paul teaches us that uh, who are you to judge someone else's servant? Why is that so hard for us to realize? I mean, we, we realize that we do that in the church, but we don't do that in the world. I mean, if you own a business, if you're the, if you're the owner of a, of a, of a business, you, uh, Everybody in their business reports to you. Their work hours, their, 
their work goals, the, the terms of their compensation, their performance standard, all of those things, they are responsible to you because they work for you. They are your paid servants. Of course, you don't expect that to be true of your competitor and, and, and his employees or, or your neighbor or anybody else. They don't answer to you. It's none of your business. You might not like the way they work. You might not like their work ethic. You might not like the way they do their job, but it's none of your business. They don't answer to you. They answer to their boss. Just like servants in a big manor house. They don't answer to each other. They're working together for the benefit of the house or the benefit of the Lord. It's none of the butler's business what the housekeeper or the cooks are doing. It's exactly the same in, in Christianity. And I don't mean by this that you should be unconcerned for your brother's welfare because we, we are told that we should ex express mutual concern for one another. In fact, Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan that you are, in fact, your brother's keeper. And if that's true, if, we're, if we are responsible for one another, we need to uh, instruct them when they're wrong. We need to pray for them. We need to help them. We need to urge them on. We need to do everything possible to see that they succeed as Christians. But we are not free to scorn them, to judge them, to determine that they're not making adequate progress in the things that we think that they should be making progress in because they don't answer to you, they answer to Jesus. So, so just leave it to him. How do we avoid judging and scorning? Well, first, we realize that they don't answer to you. And now second, we realize that God has already accepted them the way they are. That doesn't mean that the, God plans to keep them the way they are. Somewhere along the line, God decided to accept you the way you were not on the basis of your own righteousness, but on the basis of the works of Jesus Christ, God accepted you. And therefore, you should accept others because God has accepted them for the very same reason. That doesn't mean that everything that the other Christian does is right, any more than it means that everything that you do is right, but it means that the Christian is accepted because of Christ, because of his death, because of his work, because of his sacrifice because of the gift of his righteousness which is applied to you and not on the basis of your works. It is by grace. If you're making that person's behavior the determination of whether God accepts them, then you are telling us that you believe in salvation by works and not by grace. You are, in fact, in effect, denying the gospel. It's by grace alone that you are saved and not by works. You don't have to agree that everything the person does is, is right, but that doesn't mean you have the privilege to disfellowship or criticize or condemn them because God has accepted him and he's accepted you. How do we avoid this tendency towards judging and condemning Christians? First, we realize that... Um, they don't answer to you. Second, we realize that God has already accepted them and has accepted you. And now third, we realize that the other Christian stands on the grace of God, just as you do. Let's remember that it is by grace that we stand. Paul indicates this when he says to his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You know, if Jesus feels like this other believer 
needs to change something about how he's living or how he's thinking or what he's practicing, let him decide when and how he's going to make that change in that other person's life. If Jesus isn't changing that person's life that you find so offensive, perhaps he doesn't find it all that important right now or at all. But in the meantime, the Lord has a different agenda, he has a different timeline for them than he has for you. Maybe the Holy Spirit's working on something else that's more important to him, and you don't know what it is. You can't see what the Lord's working in his life. Verse 5, <laughs> one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. He who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living, both the dead and the living. So the first issue had to do with, it might have to do with whether meat was uh, offered to idols or it might, had to, might have had to do with whether the meat was kosher or not. Remember, this is a large contingent of Jewish Christians in the Roman church. So the second question um, comes up whether or not to observe special days. But notice first that Paul makes no attempt to adjudicate or resolve the problem. He doesn't say who's right. You notice that? He doesn't say one group is right, the other group is wrong. He's not trying to resolve the dispute. Rather, he is providing us with principles for how we can live in community with our differences, how we can still be very different and accept, receive, embrace one another. And so he tells us how we do that. Now, the, the question of the days, it could be that he's talking about Sabbath days. Again, a lot of these Christians were Jewish and they've been converted from Judaism, but they're still Jews. So they may have been observing Sabbath, the Saturday, the end of the week, in the Jewish community, and observing the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, on the first day of the week. They may have been observing both Saturday and Sunday, Sabbath and the, and the Lord's Day. Or it may be that they were observing certain Jewish feast days and, and special uh, 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 festival times of, of the Jews. You know, we don't really have too much the question today among Christians, well, with exception of the Seventh-day Adventists, whether we should be celebrating on Sabbath or the last day of the week, or whether we should be having our Sabbath on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. Christians, other than the Seventh-day Adventists, celebrate on the first day of the week because the Lord was raised on the first day of the week, the Holy Spirit was given on the first day of the week. And so we find right away, right away, the church is worshiping on the Lord's Day, not on Sabbath. And that doesn't mean they're not observing the rhythm of a Sabbath. They're not observing the Sabbath. So there's still the, there's still the, the uh, created rhythm. And we find this in the Decalogue to observe a Sabbath, that the, the man was created for this redemptive rhythm of one and seven. But of course, the problem that we have in our church is not so much acknowledging the one and seven, 
The problem that we have is that we tend to flatten out the calendar and we think that well, we work five days a week and then we do sports and recreation on the, the remaining two days of the week and we're not giving any day to make it holy uh, to the Lord. But we have this redemptive rhythm and the point is that we should recognize that, that God has uh, given us a day of rest whether or not it is the Sabbath or a Sabbath. But, like I said, we don't really wrestle with that one too much. We have other issues that we tend to divide over, and probably the current issue that we divide over is the use of alcohol, whether or not it's okay for Christians to drink beer or wine or bourbon or anything else like that. Um, critical to any treatment of somebody else's behavior, and we'll include the use of alcohol here, um, is whether or not we who feel liberty to do what we want to are trying to force or impose our liberties on someone else. For instance, if somebody thinks drinking wine is immoral and sinful, it is wrong for us to try to impose our standards upon them and to violate that person's scruples, uh, to violate his conscience, because any time we're trying to violate somebody else's conscience is a very serious thing. We need to be sensitive to others' sensitivity. And we, we don't want to violate their conscience, even if it's a massively misinformed conscience. It's not your job to inform them and change them. And that doesn't mean that we should just stand back and let the weaker brother's scruples rule how we live or how the church functions. And Paul makes it clear in his teaching that we're to be sensitive and loving and, and kind, but we never allow somebody else's opinion to become the tyranny over the church. R.C. Sproul noted, drinking alcohol is a controversial subject in the Christian community. Many argue that Jesus never drank wine and that when the Pharisees called Jesus a wine-bibber, they were distorting the truth. They also argue that the wine Jesus made for the wedding in Cana was unfermented. Arguing that way, however, is hopeless, tortuous, and a torturous treatment of the biblical text but it happens when people come to the text with a cultural bias. Many are convinced that total abstinence is the only spiritual way, but we learn no such things from Scripture, not from the Old Testament, nor from the celebration of the Passover. If we are to do a word study of the word wine in the Bible, we would see that it was the real thing. God sanctified it and warned against drinking too much of it because getting drunk is a sin. God did not give that warning against drunkenness to people who were drinking grape juice. This view is offensive to many people. To all such who are convinced that they cannot drink wine, then they must never let wine touch their lips because for them it is a sin. For others, it is not. Our brother ought not to judge us and we ought not to judge our brother. So the critical question is, are you really serving God by what you do? But the diagnostic question is, can you do whatever it is that you want to do with a thankful heart? See, the text before us, uh, where are we? Verse 6, three times he talks about serving the Lord. Twice he talks about giving thanks to the Lord. Well, it might have been that there, he's introducing the subject of eating foods, and naturally we sit down to the table and we give thanks. But that's not the case here. He's giving us a diagnostic question. Can we do... Whatever it is we do, whether it's eating meat, worshiping on Sabbath, or not doing those things, can we do it with a thankful heart? And, of course, that guideline cuts two ways. First, 
If the other Christian is able to do what he's doing with a thankful heart, whether it's his food or his, his work or his conduct, if he can give thanks to God, it ought to be proof to you that he is doing it unto the Lord. And that takes us back to verse 4. Who do you think you are to judge somebody else's servant? He answers to his own master. If he's serving the Lord, then you ought to just keep out of his way and allow him to do what, what God is directing him to do, allow God to do, it work, do his work in that person. And if God finds it offensive, God will tell him. You don't need to. The other side of that principle of giving thanks is a great help for us in discerning what we should do in those doubtful situations. What can I do in a situation where the Bible is not explicit, or at least where I don't understand what the Bible is teaching, which is meant to be explicit? And one very good answer is, can you do that in the Lord and give thanks for it? The Swiss commentator F. Godet said, may I allow myself this or that pleasure? Yes, if I can enjoy it to the Lord and while giving, thanks, while giving him thanks for it. No, if I cannot receive it as a gift from his hand and bless him for it. This mode of solution respects at once the rights of the Lord and those of individual liberty. Isn't it encouraging to know that uh, our success in our Christian life does not depend on pleasing other people and living up to them and satisfying what their opinions are because we really aren't working for their approval, their, their commendation. We are working for the approval of the Lord Jesus. He knew us before. He knew what we were like before we got saved. He knows the struggles of going through life. He knows where we have been, where we are. He knows what we're going through right now. He knows what, where, we are, where we are going. He knows what we will be like when he's done with us. Other people, they don't see that. They're tempted rather to compare us, usually unfavorably, with themselves. But we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't answer to other servants for our behavior and our motive. We answer to him. We belong to him. So long as there's not a question of disobedience to the essentials of the word, it's not our job to interfere. You remember when John 21, uh, Jesus is reinstating Peter, and they're at the beach, and Jesus says to Peter, let's go for a walk. So Jesus and Peter are walking along. Jesus is reinstating Peter, but he begins with, follow me. But Peter's going along. He's feeling hangdog low because of his failure. He looks back, and he sees the disciple John following behind him, and he's annoyed by that. And Peter turns around and says, what about him? What does Jesus say? You let me worry about him. You worry about yourself. You follow me. He's not accountable to you. He's accountable to me. You're not responsible for him. Warren Wiersbe says, whenever I hear believers condemning other Christians because of something they disagree with, something that's not essential or forbidden in the word, I feel like saying, what is that to thee? Follow Christ. Let him be Lord. All right, so we welcome Christians that are different from us. One, because God has received him and he's received you. Two, because 
God is his Lord and God is your Lord. And now third, because God will judge him and God will also judge you. Look at verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. It's interesting to me how often Christians pick and choose their way through theology and they tend to ignore, discount, or deny the very clear teaching of the scripture. Here's what this scripture and many others say. Christians must stand and give an account for their life. Now it's true we will never stand before the great white throne and we will never stand to give an account of our sin because Christ has done that for us. We will never have to stand before the seat for condemnation. But Christians do stand before the judge's platform, it's called the Bema, to give an account of how we lived our life. So we're not going to give an account for the sins that we have committed, but it's also true that your sin keeps you from serving the Lord. Your sin handicaps you from doing what God wants you to do. And for that, we will stand and give an account. Heaven's not going to be the same for all of us. It's not just that you get in and, I made it. I'm up here with Billy Graham and, and the Apostle Paul. No, we are going to give an account for how we lived our lives, how obedient we were to the Lord, and it's going to be different for each one of us. Coincidentally, hell's going to be different for each of the people there in hell. It's not all the same. By the way, Satan is not the, 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 the leader, the god of hell. He is a prisoner like everyone else. The point is that there will be different honors and different rewards given for how you have lived your life. So we all stand to be judged for our faithful service. Our sins will not be brought up, but our service will be judged. And so we have to give an account of ourselves. Second Corinthians 5, 9. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. The scripture is very clear on that. But the point is we give an account to Christ, not to each other. And again, Christ knows our past. He understands our motives. He understands our weakness. He sees the big picture in a way that we don't see in other people. We, we want to point out other people's foibles, their weaknesses, because somehow it draws attention away from our own. If we can just point out the fact that they are heinous sinners, they're not making progress, they're weak in the faith, if I can find fault in them, it's easy for me to justify how much further I have come. If I can find weakness in their house, perhaps it will disguise the weakness in my own. So how then shall we live? Well, we need to watch ourselves because the strong can grow weary of the weak because they're too scrupulous. We despise their legalistic manners. And in the meantime, the weak can condemn the strong because it appears to them that they're prideful and licentious. 
their indifference to God's righteous demands. Let the strong know that indulgence is not the cure for legalism. Let the weak know that rules cannot prevent sin. How we treat each other is a gospel issue. If God accepts sinners like you, or like Terry Johnson of all people, if he can accept people like that, if he can accept me, is it too much for him to accept others? Like, like the song Amazing Grace, you know how, how, great, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you. We don't agree on everything, and that's okay. It's okay to be different. It's okay to see things differently. There, there, there's no perfect church because it's filled with imperfect people. And we as Christian people are all in the process of change. We're not who we were, and we're not who we're going to be one day. We are all immature, and the Holy Spirit is changing every one of us to be like Jesus and not like each other. And he's doing it in his time in the areas that he thinks are important to him in the order that he thinks it's important. You know, I was once a, a guest at a very large mansion like Downton Abbey. When I was about 10 years old, my, my family uh, were the summer guests of the head chef. His name was Bud Abbott in this huge mansion in Bar Harbor, Maine. This was a cool place to be 10 years old. It had secret passages and it had hidden rooms. It was rumored this, this house sat on this, this mansion sat on this cliff like, like dark shadows, you know, with the, with the waves coming down at the bottom. And it was rumored that during, I don't know, World War I or World War II, there was a radio transmission room in this mansion that communicated with the Nazi submarines offshore. So as a 10-year-old, we were trying very hard to find out where this room was. So, like I said, there were all kinds of secret passages through this mansion, and we think we found the place where the room was because the walls didn't line up. But we never did find a way into that room. At this, in this mansion, there was a lot of people working. The chef that we knew, this guy had an amazing skill. He could crack four eggs at a time, two eggs in each hand, a dozen in three moves, because he was feeding a large, a large group. But there was also uh, chefs, helpers, uh, there were groundskeepers, housekeepers, um, vehicle maintenance guys, accountants. There's a lot of people that worked in this, this big house. They were all doing their own jobs, and they were all doing their jobs for the benefit of the owner, not for each other. And they ultimately answered to the owner, not to one another. That's true of God's house, too. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. And that's from uh, John 14, 2 maybe, you know. But I'm adapt it a little bit to, in our Father's house, there are many servants. And they're all doing their own job. It's not your business what they do. It's your job to let them do their jobs to the service and the glory of Christ. Let's pray, and I'll invite the men to come forward for communion and Emily and who's huh and Cindy okay great now let's begin with a word of prayer 
Father, we realize as we look at these common elements, it's just bread, it's just grape juice. And we realize in this church it's just very common people, ordinary, unremarkable sinners. But as we take this common thing, this bread and this juice, we set it aside for a sacred purpose to represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we share in this communion, we are communing with one another and communing with you and we recognize your life lived out your righteousness transferred to us we recognize your blood shed for us that atones for our sin that is accepted by God that he is satisfied with the sacrifice that has been made so we set aside these common lives for a holy and sacred purpose and invite you Holy Spirit, continue your work in making us like Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen.